0: I'm finna put all this in my book bag cause I'm from the streets yeah yeah. boom what's going on it's your boy Ambition and I'm back at you with another episode of the MYFB podcast and today we have the infamous and I say infamous because he was running down some of the some of his accomplishments uh, being a uh, mathematician a computational mathematician I believe it was and uh working for tech companies and really stumbling across an exciting way that we may be able to change investing in the future so without further ado ladies and gentlemen Noah Healy did I say that right
1: yes absolutely all right
0: yeah well thanks for having me oh no thank you for joining us how
1: are you doing today man uh I'm doing well uh, Feeling pretty good. Um, It's it's a nice warm December day here in uh, Central Virginia.
0: (laughs) Nice, nice. Okay, so uh, for everybody out there listening, what is it that you do?
1: Uh, So I'm working on getting this project off the ground. Uh, I've developed a new design for commodity markets. Uh, So that that's a little kind of low level in the economy space. But um, as we, we, the supply chain disruption has has sort of shown a lot of people a lot more of the guts of the global economy than, than they were used to seeing on a regular basis. Um, the reason there is a globalized supply chain and the reason there's things like grocery stores that have fresh fruit regardless of the season and stuff like that, and you know, building supply stores, is that uh, for historical reasons, mostly accidental, um, we've standardized on certain lot size and quality types of, of things that are generally very valuable. So entire train loads of corn or wheat or, or steel or, or oil or something like that. Right. Um, can be completely standardized, um, at least good enough for sort of government work as it it were. And so this creates a very interesting situation where you've got two-sided competition. Um, Basically there's competition for producers and competition for consumers. Uh, And so the markets grew out of this um, since really the Renaissance, uh, and we've been using this same technique, futures trading, to figure out what prices ought to be uh, for centuries since since before you know the Europe explored the New World uh, and and you could get on a ship and sail someplace. Wow. Um,
0: okay, so. Here's um, so okay. Simplifying that for all of our listeners a bit is basically um, right now we the way that we trade commodities is called futures, and you're basically saying that's an antiquated model, and we can do better, right? Yes,
1: yes. That's so my point.
0: My next question is, um, okay, you've designed something that is better. Um, before we even get to how it's better, um, what is the likelihood that we pick up a new way of trading altogether? What, what's our chances of getting something like that done?
1: Uh, it's interesting. This is the only hard part. Um, the, the history of market evolution uh, is that adoption is hard or initial adoption is hard, competition is easy. Uh, so the way that we do it right now was developed. We believe by accident. There's no historical attribution. Who came up with futures markets in the first place, and and sort of the market ticker and so on. Um, but it it took Europe by storm, uh, and because of how that marketplace works, um, dominant markets for individual commodities become a natural sort of way that it organizes. So essentially what happened is that uh, Northern Italy dominated trade um, until the new world silver that the Spanish were bringing into Amsterdam. If you've ever wondered why Amsterdam has like so much picturesque architecture from around the 15 and 1600s uh, that makes it all look like that. Well, that's, that's why. Um, the New World silver made that the cheapest capital in Europe and so they took over the dominance of those marketplaces and became very rich. And then um, about 150 or so years later, uh, the English came up with fractional reserve banking which is what we use now and that let them make money even less expensively than digging it out of the Andes and shipping it back from, from the new world. Uh, and so then they became the dominant players. Uh, and there are in fact exchanges in the London metals exchange that have remained dominant to this day. Uh, the, at this point, the, the major dominant exchanges globally uh, are generally ev- either in London or Chicago. Um, Chicago got a bit of an inroads because you know Illinois is the best farmland in the world, um, and so they just had so much access to to the agricultural products that they took over those markets. Uh, but that's, that's sort of the way things are and people go to where the best deals are available. So if you can durably produce better deals, then, then people will just change. Uh, There's actually. Would, would the adoption of
0: um, a new way to trade commodities, would that would that be traded in smaller decentralized markets first? How would we the 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 question is how how would a network for it would would this essentially look like betting first off? Are we looking at you know Vegas maybe picking something like this up or you know, is uh, it-
1: so it will have to look like a financial market. All financial markets do in fact look like betting even even at late stage existing financial markets look like betting um the new york stock exchange so people are a little bit more used to and familiar with stock exchanges the stock and stock exchange um actually comes from the root word it's the same reason we use stockyard as like where you bring animals in for for slaughter and trade Um, The commodity market design was come up with first and then people figured out that you could use this design to commoditize companies by splitting them up into even shares and then trading those using the the commodity market design.
0: Okay. So let's get get a little bit deeper into your design for how we should trade commodities. Um, Tell us a little bit more about it and how is it better than the system that we're currently using?
1: Uh, Sure. So it's basically a wisdom of crowds type of a play Um, it the way it works is there's a forecasting marketplace and then an exchange um, for physical trades and so what happens is people who think that they know where the price should be going and how it should be getting there put their guesses into the forecasting marketplace saying, you know, I think the price tomorrow should be this and, you know, next week, that, and next month, whatever. Uh, and also back that up with some money. And so what so, the system does is it-
0: yes. Wait, hold on, time up. And, and th- this is news to me, but what you're basically saying is that the uh, futures market is, the prices are dictated by one speculation And a little bit of capital to back that speculation.
1: In my model, yes. Uh, Although what you said is general enough to actually cover the existing model as well. So people people trade on the marketplace. And what the marketplace does is announce the trades that are made. But the trades aren't going to happen now. They're going to happen in the future. So people are trading the right to trade three or four months down the line. Or a year or even more down the line. Um, and so what happens is, essentially, each thing that's going to wind up getting physically exchanged gets traded multiple times. That, and and since there's sort of a final price that's going to come out of all of that... Um, each of those exchangers has a sort of winner and a loser. The person who's on the right side of the trade where they're making money, the person that's the wrong side of the trade where they're losing money. Now, what gets tricky is because there's so many of these going on all the time and it's not sort of threads, it's just sort of a free for all. Um, Somebody that's on the wrong side of the trade could find somebody that's even wronger than they were and offload on them and still make money. So it it gets sort of very confusing until you get to the end um, my system does away with all that and just says instead of each person trying to make the best deals they can make in an environment where lots and lots of people are all trying to make deals a million times a second literally that's the pace of the market um, everyone comes together and says what they think the best deal overall, what the the market price is going to turn out to be. And the marketplace integrates all that information together and then checks it by saying, okay, this is the price we're going to trade at. Who actually wants to exchange at this price? You guys who make this stuff, you guys who use this stuff, how much do you want at these prices? So the physical exchange almost becomes like a grocery store at that point you know you just go in and you're like you know 350 for honey crisps is too much but you know i like i like these these granny smiths cuz i'm going to make some pies out of them and 2 bucks for those is good so i'll just take a couple pounds of those and leave the honey crisps aside okay so so what happens is those people that make those trades at the prices that the forecasters figured out Pay a commission to trade in the marketplace. That commission gets divvied up and given to the forecasters based on how much of their information turned out to be useful. So
0: what do what do you say to the people that would say right away that there's um there's an issue there where you know you're you're giving each stakeholder too much uh power in determining the price of goods right
1: uh, so that power is only valuable to them if what they're doing is figuring out the price that everybody needs it to be.
0: oh come on man so, you gotta what, what about when um honeycombs or general Mills wants to go well you know what 350 is not enough for a box of cereal and we're gonna hold out until it's 650.
1: So what would happen is uh demand would collapse in the face of prices being too high. And because we settle we settle from the bottom up all of their small competitors would have their entire orders get filled at this inflated price whereas they will bear the brunt of of the losses okay because they they're not going to get to trade. So you've got like one guy, you've got a dominated market. You've got one guy that wants to trade a hundred units a week, and you've got 10 guys that each want to trade 10 units a week. And the hundred unit a week guy is like, you know what? It'd be great if prices were twice what they used to be. I mean, I'd make twice as much money. I'd make, and that's a way bigger gain than those little, Tiddly 10 10 guys and so my twice as much money it'd be all profit i could go buy them up and become a monopoly let's go for it so let's play this out he doubles the price which mm-hmm. is hard to do but we'll get into that later what happens well demand let's say it gets cut in half people are like for this much i don't need as much anymore so boom suddenly there's 11 people out there, they want to trade 200 things. That's all they've got. They'd trade more, but they can't. And everybody else is like, well, we only want hundred things. Well, then the market says, well, okay. Well, I only need nine from each of you then. So, you know, it takes nine. It's got one left over. it sort of allocates that randomly. One of his little competitors gets to sell all 10, the rest of them all get nine. They get an 80% boost that week because they sold nine things for twice what they normally sell them for. Uh he takes an 82% loss that week because he sells nine things for twice what he used to sell them for but he used to sell 100 things for what he used to sell them for. Suddenly, he's not looking like a genius. He's looking like bankrupt. Uh, mm. and so, so price,
0: I, I would say that is going to be you, you said earlier that the hardest thing would be getting it into play. I think the hardest thing is uh, getting around uh, the fact that we live in a capitalist society, my friend, anything that uh, and this this is personal opinion, I guess. Right. Um, by far, I'm no expert, but it would seem to me that anything that does not benefit someone amassing large amounts of wealth and damn near being able to grab those sorts of monopolies or, you know, oligopolies. Um, it seems like that's the system that we're in and those are massively powerful. And that is,
1: that is, that is something that you're more used to from the stock side of things. Commodities are mostly actually dominated by competition. Think about how many farmers there are, for example. Okay. Um, Got you. So while it would be possible, um, and shenanigans do get played, um, Craft, uh, for example, had to pay an enormous fine when they were manipulating the cheese market um, in order to affect the forwards contracts that they were getting involved in. Um, in in large part, uh, the important thing to understand is that there are very powerful forces on both sides of this equation. So. Right what you're normally used to is a retail universe where you're just you and you know sure maybe your community has preferences and you know your local grocery store has different stuff in the grocery store across the across the city or something but the the retail chains that are that are putting these things together you know cookie crisp or Chips Ahoy decides how many chocolate chips are in cookies. You don't decide how many chocolate chips are in cookies. Um, that kind of thing. However, commodities is a business-to-business situation. You've got you know miners and farmers uh, and other large-scale land management firms on one side, and then you have manufacturers, millers, bakers, and and other large scale things on the other side and what they actually gain an advantage from is regularity and predictability
0: well so to, to what degree do you think that you know quality assurance processes and you know that entire industry of you know quality assurance has come into play since industrialization and just made it so that these markets are very predictable right like you know, Purdue Farms probably knows exactly how many chickens they're going to have, you know, in the next season.
1: Well, th- thanks to things like the weather, uh, there's only so much you can do. Now, the marketplaces are pretty good um, and they do do a generally good job. Um, but what they generally do uh, is essentially offer a hedging strategies. So they allow you to buy ahead of time when you don't really know what the answer is gonna turn out to be because the market can be incredibly unstable at sort of point of sale. And so while on average, you'll earn more if you can hang on until the spot, um, most, most of these businesses are relatively low margin I mean, even oil companies who have enormous profits in in gross terms operate on margins in the sort of eight to 12 percent, which would put, you know, your your local retail store out of business to try to 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 get that thin. Right. Um, but they can they can do that um, because in one sense, there's always perpetual demand. People have to keep eating. People have to keep you know, keeping their houses warm. Um, people have to keep building houses and and maintaining the houses they have, and so on. Um, but those margins do mean that they can't absorb a lot of risk. Um, oh, if prices are to suddenly reverse, then then they'd have a bad time. And if that happened at exactly the wrong time. Um, which They're is exactly out of advantageous to make it happen. Yes, then they would go bankrupt. So, the the marketplaces exist to essentially buffer them against uh, advantageous counter dealing. Um, okay, cool.
0: Gotcha. you, got you. Um, so we mentioned earlier um, you had some experience with tech startups, right? Yes. I just wanna help the uh, listeners get a little bit more background into you. Um, what was your experience at tech startups? What type of culture um, would you say existed there? Uh,
1: for the most part, there's a lot of optimism um, the, and, and a lot of exploration happening in, in most tech startups. Uh, which is, which is a great environment to be in. Um, The, there, when you're creating a a brand new product, or even something that's, that's pretty similar to what exists, but, but different in some way that you think is critical, uh, you have to have a lot of optimism to keep your, keep yourself going to sort of believe that, that the world will pick up on on this idea or or this notion, Right. Um, that the the tech startups I worked at um, did I would say sort of fifty fifty succeed, um, which is which is a higher proportion than average, uh, particularly for somebody that's uh, not not at a tech hub really, right? Um, but uh, but that sort of the the optimism it's 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 nice when it pays off and it sort of has a dark side when it breaks because that's that's where um people can sort of turn negative when when their hopes are dashed uh or right right yeah people can also sort of overclock themselves and, and, you know, just be Leave absolutely sure. Yeah. That, that this is, this is the only thing um, and, and wind up. Yeah. Burn out. Exactly.
0: Okay. So question. um Excuse me uh, with the, um the startups that you saw that were successful versus the ones that you saw that, maybe there was a mistake made or they weren't as successful. What separated the successful guys from those who maybe they missed the goal or maybe they missed the mark?
1: Uh, sales. It's, it's 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 simple. It's one word. Um, sales and marketing generally like to present themselves as the as sort of the soul of the business, uh, which I think is overreaching. Um, but uh that they are they are at minimum the blood of the business. Um, right. and and businesses that don't figure out how to hook their cash flow into their operations, um they they don't make it.
0: Right. That makes a whole lot of sense, right? It's it, it's not a business if you're not selling something. And right? well,
1: it's it's not just that because even the ones that that failed were generally selling <laughs> something. But it's not going to be a successful business if the thing that you're selling isn't the thing that you're making. Mm. Um, so, my first company uh, that I was working for, they were really pioneers in social gaming. Um, they had, had uh, the, the ex-wife of Merv Griffin who had invented things like Jeopardy um, along with her husband and her sister. And she had other ideas for game shows. And she met these guys who said, why don't we take these types of, you know, daytime television housewife crack games put right. them online and instead of letting people watch them, let people play them. Um, and so they developed a client plugin back in the late nineties that would allow people to go into a, you know, anteroom is what they called it. You know, we call it lobbies these days, get right. matched up for a game, chat with the other players. Um, and they had a they had a dedicated fan base of around a hundred thousand, and they had contracts with like AOL and and places like that to, to get their content out. And they were selling ads because um, they were you know TV people. So they were like, well, we do ad sales. Um, but ad sales wasn't really sort of making enough sense for for what they had to develop because. You know The technology of browsers and, and lobbies and the rest of that was, it was being developed at the time, really. Uh, so they came up with this idea of some sort of prize money system where they could create partnerships where people would win prizes and then get discounts on stuff that was advertising with them. And they'd be able to put together deals and so on. Well, the players didn't care players liked the social aspect of the games they liked being there for that they liked coming in the games were popular um
0: wow hold but, on so what you just said was really important and sorry to cut you off but I, yeah we I really want the listeners to listen to how in the late 90s we already you guys were already noticing trends that what got people enticed into you know, the internet and the technology at the time was the social aspect.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they just, they just ignored it. They completely ignored it. They were, that's what they were actually, that's what they spent their money on. That's what they spent their development on. They had people that were developing the clients that would allow this to happen. Um, the servers to, to manage the messaging. Um, they were, their their. they sort of branding and marketing was built around community. They had newsletters that would go out and so on. Um, But they planned on making their money off of business to business corporate partnerships. And they, Mm. that's not what they did. Like they didn't, they didn't have their, their technology didn't work that way. It didn't connect to that way. And it turned out um, at the 11th hour, uh, and I was actually the person who saw this first because I was doing data analysis for them. Uh, their players just didn't care. They, they, you know that they, they it wasn't it wasn't Amazon. They weren't there to buy things. They were there uh, to, to to play the games and to chat with their friends.
0: Right, and that is something that I've noticed as a trend as well. Is you you don't know really what your audience is going to end up using the platform for.
1: Right. Right. Um, And so, yeah, they, they, uh, they spent a lot of money on a thing that they weren't monetizing and they ran out of money uh, before they decided to start trying to monetize it. And um, that was the end of that.
0: So interestingly enough, right. Um, you know, the uh, coaching and consulting arm of my business has a single target market that we're working with right now. And, um, you know, by the time this episode come, comes out, uh, this will actually be pretty cool to send to the people who mm-hmm. are into the course. Um, if I have it my way, there is a community collaboration platform that was designed specifically for businesses um it's not a it's not an extremely popular one but it's really great and it it works really well for developers right they love it um if i have it my way that's going to be used by skincare professionals and estheticians to talk to beauty influencers and Uh, People that just care about their beauty and their scare routine, if I have it my way (laughs) as a marketer, right? Um, Because a lot of times what happens is, I I think I'm guilty of this as a tech person, you know, uh, 13 years in cybersecurity and doing all of these things. We want to build technology for what we would use it for, um, but we aren't the most social people, right, in in this (laughs) field. Um, so when you look at what the social people would use it for, they're really looking at community and engagement, uh, apps right now. And like, I feel like that's going to be the wave of what people should look at, uh, in 2022, if you're investing in something, or if you say, oh, well, this new platform is coming out. How well does it do to help people manage and engage with communities? Uh, Would you agree with that, or what's your opinion on that?
1: Um, I think that that's going to keep being important. I think long-term, critical for the stability of our societies and cultures is going to be simplification. Mm -hmm. Um, What I see with computers is that uh, we've gotten a lot of increased capacity but we're mostly doing the way we've been doing. Um, and so sort of um, there's been some really good things that happen, but also sort of the worst instincts get to come out as well. So, you know, if, if your boss is into micromanagement, well now, you know, everything that, you touch in an office place has a computer inside it with a log, and and now you know they're they're watching people walk around. Um, which that kind of big tech information processing stores like Walmart or or you know grocery stores, that's that's the level of tracking they have. Um, you know what right. I've seen rolling out in the last year is is phone apps to get discounts well once their app is on your phone um now they know where you are not just when you're in the store but when you're out of the store so it's an it's another level of engage you know watching your customers that kind of behavior isn't necessarily all that great um so yeah
0: i i agree with you i don't think that it's um I don't think that it's one ethical, um, but I have worked for companies where I've seen those sort of things, especially doing cybersecurity. Um, And I I would say the attitudes around it and some of the things that I've experienced are, um, it's really interesting, right? It's like, you know, I I mentioned one time that, you know, some data should be masked. And it was like, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll We'll let so and so know about it, and it's like, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get the fuck out of here before right. in
1: Congress. Yeah, yeah. What, what what's what's my severance period here? Because that's right. the day I'm not gonna work here anymore. Right, right.
0: Um, um so I, I think there's a whole lot of that, but an, another thing that I'm I'm also noticing is that, um the little guys, right. The, the little guys have access to more of this technology than they did before. And I'm not saying, I'm not advocating that small businesses start tracking their customers down to the lowest, you know, common denominator, but, you know, at least get into the CRMs, at least understand the relationship that you have with your uh, customer, at least get into, you know, some of these things when it comes to voice search uh voice searches are becoming extremely more prevalent for marketers and uh for businesses um well,
1: yeah how this is as people engage with the internet and computers through their phones instead of their their laptop
0: well what about through their cars? Where's
1: their? Or, or yeah or through their car but yeah same point where's the keyboard you know it, it it doesn't exist. right You better not be targeting, you know, keyboard and mouse if nobody's going to have one of those.
0: So I will say that um, I think our listeners are going to be surprised on this episode. I think this has been um m- our our most tech heavy uh, episode. And thank you because uh, I don't get to have a lot of these conversations either. <laughs> um, you know, one of the um, and I, I'm not sure whether or not you've experienced this. One of the uh, things that I've run into. Uh, even being in the tech field is that you might be in a job that's really heavy um, in technologies and understanding the internet and protocols and, you know, all of these different things, but uh, not a lot of people would like to have the uh, level of conversation that uh, comes along with that. Has that been your experience as well?
1: In general, yes. Um, I found that you can do a certain amount kind of shaping of your own environment. Um, I was at a company where I was, uh, I was managing their uh, version control system. Um, and for those in the audience that don't know, uh, there's ways that you can basically save every version of a file you've ever touched so that if you had some good idea and then you erased it and wrote something else, you can just get it back. Uh, or critically, if lots and lots of people are all changing files at the same time, you can unwrap who did what and in which order. And that's why your website's down now, right. um, which is, that's what it mostly gets used for. So uh, I was handling um, a, a team um, that was about 200 people um, with, with uh, the group I was in was about five people, um, and I was able to set up a lecture series on concepts in in computation and recursion and so on um, to sort of build uh, a, a group around ourselves that we could talk about the ethics of computation and so on. Um, nice. And yeah, it was it was it was pretty nice. Um, it was about uh, three thousand line system uh, that was handling it and we had uh, not to get too techy but we had uh, continuous integration um, with multi stages so you could could set up a project so that when somebody on the project made a change it would and checked it in to the system um, a virtual machine would spool up build that project and test it and if that worked it would then spool up a a branch to do merges with the other people in the project, test those merges, and then push the changes out to their branches if they were clean. And if they weren't clean, then um, a notification would be generated. And, And so, you know, Tom and Jerry could find out that they were both working on the same file on the same thing. And that they had different opinions about what should be happening, um, right? And that they needed to talk to each other <laughs> before you know you got three months down the road, and nobody could remember you know why this whole thing was built like this and that whole thing was built like that, and the two didn't work together anymore.
0: Right. Cool. So, all right, let's um, man, last bit of questions, right? Uh, as a techie, I know that you have, um, w- we tend to make some uh, mistakes, right? And those mistakes usually carry uh, some pretty high penalties. Uh, what are some crazy tech stories that you have for us, man? Uh,
1: I once frobbed a computer so bad they had to unplug it. Uh, this was very early on in my career. I was working on uh, the Spam Cannon project. Uh, I knew just enough to be dangerous, uh, and so I'd done a little testing on how many threads a our our server could actually handle, uh, and I figured out that it could handle about 90 simultaneous things. So in order to get the spam sent out faster, the newsletter sent out faster, uh, I figured I'd set fork off 10 instances of SendMail. SendMail runs as root, so it's got God level tier. Uh, And what I didn't know uh, is that it needs at least 10 and frequently as many as 20 processes to do what it does. So I dropped so many processes. Uh, every time your computer decides that it has a new kind of thing to do, there's something called an inode table, um, where every identifier inside the computer's brain takes one off the table. Well, back in 2000, inode tables weren't all that deep. Uh, and so what happened was the inode table actually overflowed. and the 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 server that this was running on um, the power button on the outside of it was actually not a hard line it wasn't it wasn't like connected through a physical relay the power supply it was actually a root level signal which should be fine because the root can always catch an inode if it wants to unless a root level process is gotten so many things out of the inode that it's overflowed the inode cube. And so then it can't do that anymore. So, so I hit return, um, started watching the send mail log flip by like at matrix speeds. Um, and a few seconds later heard the, the head of the server team uh, start bustling around. Then he got off and ran out of the room. Um, the, the the CTO came in. The entire server team was gathered around trying to figure out what was going on. About five minutes in, I go over and I'm like, you know, I just did something. You know, maybe I caused what the problem that you're having is. They said, no, that's impossible. Like the problem we're having is so bad that that you lowly startup person couldn't possibly have done anything this bad. It's too bad for that. Um, about 15 minutes later <laughs> I I finally convinced them <laughs> that in fact I did do I explained to them what I did uh, you know they're finally listening um, they're like oh yeah yeah that could definitely cause a problem <laughs> they yeah. Uh, I have the only functioning terminal, but unfortunately, it's reading off the sendmail log, and so we try to we try to get in through that because maybe it's got an active inode, and we can use it to reboot the system. No go. Once we once we shut off the inode log thing, um, the the queue moves forward, gets rolled out. Nobody has access anymore. Um, they press the button. That's when they find out that the power button actually doesn't. Doesn't work the way they thought it did. Holy shit! And you uh,
0: overclocked it so much that <laughs> that's right,
1: the power button the actually power yeah, button. needs needs a signal. So they're like, okay, well, I guess this is how this works. <laughs> um, that's not my. So that's that's the worst thing I ever did. The worst thing I ever saw. Um, there was a guy who was working for a lab that had an enormous amount of uh data in jpegs um it was it was a biology lab but they had some particle accelerator stuff they were doing like radiation research or something right um and so they had a raid um to to store the you know many gigabytes of of uh of JPEGs that they needed um, that, that sort of the, all the historical research of their lab was, was based on. So this guy uh, had decided to back up his home directory to the raid. Um, Why? Which was, which so, was a little weird. So for everybody um, listening,
0: that's the equivalent of you taking your, uh, your storage device from home and plugging it into your uh, work computer well, it was, his, it, was, it was it was
1: home. It was the home directory on his work computer, so it wasn't quite that bad. But okay. it was, but this was at a university where the IT department actually automatically checkpointed your home directory. So, so backups, great idea. Backing up a system that's under continuous backup probably not necessary. Um, however. So he tars it up. He does not zip the tar. I know this because I got to read it later. Uh, and instead of copying the the archive file into a directory, he catted or DD'd it onto the mount point of the of the raid. Now, again, for those out there, the f- Raids and disk and other things are organized in blocks. They're basically these big sections of digital information. Um, the first one's called the master block, and it's basically got a map of where all the all the signposts are and all the blocks in the entire system. So the system reads the master block, figures out like wh- how this thing's organized. Many organizations are large enough that you, there's other blocks dedicated to that. But the master block is always the first thing. The system takes right. the master block, figures out what's going on. Well, the mount point tells the system where the master block is. And Cat overwrites whatever is there on a bit-for-bit basis. So his master block read slash home slash his username slash... Slash home slash his username slash the first file, in his thing, and then all the files at the, the top level. Then the contents of those files in in ASCII. That's that's what was there instead of the master block. Uh, <laughs> JPEGs are random. They're 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 completely rare. without without a file system. There's no difference between a JPEG and noise recorded onto. A a physical media, uh, and he completely wiped the master block and overwrote it with his not even compressed, just just plain English home directory, Ooh. and that's the worst thing I've ever seen.
0: So, wow. Okay. So they never talked to him again. Never to him.
1: He he left uh, that day uh, and was not not employed there anymore. Yes.
0: Um, Okay, so you gave me two, I'll give you two. Um, The first one is actually, I was responsible for this one. Um, It's my first year in the fleet, I was in the Marine Corps, and I'm working on these systems that track all the man hours and maintenance for the planes. Um, So if these systems aren't up, and there are two Unix uh, systems, TAC-4, right? Um, If the systems aren't up, planes don't fly. Right? Sure. Well, we were doing some maintenance and, uh, you know, I was going through some of the security instructions and it had an upgrade, update that you had to do to the group file, right? Or the group directory. Sorry. Well, instead of updating it, I deleted it. Well, and it's different than it used to be. <laughs> right so <laughs> and update it i deleted it um so went to go start and it goes oh this is not working well and no one can log in because this system has no group file
1: yeah dod gets pretty touchy about security i'd imagine if you wipe out all the permission structure, uh, it's not going to let you do anything.
0: <laughs> right. So nobody could log in at all. Right. Um, And we had to go ahead and load from backup and it's using tape backups. This is 2009, 2010, but we're still using tape backups in 2009, 2010. Right.
1: Well, tape, tape's cheaper than disk, even to this day. I mean,
0: yeah, it's, it's, it, it- <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm not a yeah, fan. Yeah. A lot of it's real, night.
1: real slow, though.
0: <laughs> um, the second one, uh, something that uh, more people would relate to is I was in cybersecurity school in 2014 or 2015. And while I was in school, the actual the system that the the instructors use and that we were using for all the labs uh that had all of our material was hit with a ransomware attack so <laughs> imagine you're in cybersecurity school uh in the marine corps so government agency and you're hit with this ransomware attack and your instructors are real life dealing with the so are we gonna pay or are we not gonna pay <laughs> so that was the craziest thing that i saw
1: uh, yeah that, that's an important lesson. Yeah, the best part of, of my worst story um, is that I treated uh, those guys at the bio lab exactly the way I got treated. So I was working for a different lab at the time. And right. and so these guys came to my boss and, and basically said, can you lend us somebody to help us out? And he was like, yeah, I got a guy here. Go over and tell Noah about it. So they told me what happened. And like I couldn't even hear it. I was like, well, you're not technical. The words you're saying just don't make any. like there's no way a technically employed human being could write data to the master like that.
0: Didn't- I- I've told people this about techies, and they don't believe me. I told them I was like, listen, when you're a techie, you judge everyone else by how technical or not technical they are. right? And if you're the manager of a bunch of tech people, don't be a paper pusher. Don't don't let me sniff the paper on your fingers. Right. It's one of those things that's. um,
1: Well, in my defense, it's it's so easy to misspeak. I mean, technical things are technical things because the details are so so critically important and it's so easy to misspeak. But, yeah, it was just it was so ridiculous I couldn't imagine that what they were describing was real like there's no way that actually happened so I go down and sit down and um you know try to open up the file and it doesn't work (laughs) um so I try to mount the file and it doesn't like it and and they're sitting there right next to me and they're like yeah yeah like we told you like this is what he did um and finally uh I just I just opened up the the actual disk location in, in a text reader uh, to take a look at what was there. And right in front of me was the his home directory in English sitting in front of me. And I was like, oh, my God. It's like, you are screwed. <laughs> just came right. out of my mouth. <laughs> like, this All right.
0: So in the spirit of wrapping it up, what is the... Uh what is something that you want our audience to take from everything that you've said today? So what do you think is the uh, most important thing to them? Uh,
1: I think the most important thing is that we're on the cusp of, of a new day, that that computers are actually really important and that they're gonna wipe out or alter in ways that render unidentifiable uh, the day-to-day lives and and institutions that that make up our world um, and that we're going to have to build those things uh, so that they work better than the ones we've got. Uh, Because if we don't, then then we're looking at uh, uh, really collapse.
0: I definitely agree with that, right? Um, As somebody who suffered through nights under uh tape backups
1: yeah yeah it's, that. it's extremely oh. painful to do the wrong thing
0: right so for the rest of you those of you listening go be great <laughs>